Chapter Five, Part Two of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria, by Giles Lytton Strachey, Chapter Five, Part Two. Two. In this affair, both the Queen and the Prince had been too much occupied with the delinquencies of Louis-Philippe to have any wrath to spare for those of Palmerston. And indeed, on the main issue, Palmerston's attitude and their own had been in complete agreement. But in this the case was unique. In every other foreign complication, and they were many and serious during the ensuing years, the differences between the royal couple and the foreign secretary were constant and profound. There was a sharp quarrel over Portugal, where violently hostile parties were flying at each other's throats. The royal sympathy was naturally enlisted on behalf of the Queen and her Coburg husband, while Palmerston gave his support to the progressive elements in the country. It was not until 1848, however, that the strain became really serious. In that year of revolutions, when in all directions and with alarming frequency crowns kept rolling off royal heads albert and victoria were appalled to find that the policy of england was persistently directed in germany in switzerland in austria in italy in sicily so as to favour the insurgent forces the situation indeed was just such a one as the soul of palmerston loved there was danger and excitement, the necessity of decision, the opportunity for action on every hand. A disciple of Canning, with an English gentleman's contempt and dislike of foreign potentates deep in his heart, the spectacle of the popular uprisings and of the oppressors bundled ignominiously out of the palaces they had disgraced, gave him unbounded pleasure, and he was determined that there should be no doubt whatever all over the continent on which side in the great struggle England stood. It was not that he had the slightest tincture in him of philosophical radicalism. He had no philosophical tinctures of any kind. He was quite content to be inconsistent, to be a conservative at home and a liberal abroad. There were very good reasons for keeping the Irish in their places, but what had that to do with it? The point was this. When any decent man read an account of the political prisons in Naples, his gorge rose. He did not want war, but he saw that without war a skillful and determined use of England's power might do much to further the cause of the liberals in Europe. It was a difficult and a hazardous game to play, but he set about playing it with delighted alacrity. And then, to his intense annoyance, just as he needed all his nerve and all possible freedom of action, he found himself being hampered and distracted at every turn by those people at Osborne. He saw what it was. The opposition was systematic and informed, and the Queen alone would have been incapable of it. The Prince was at the bottom of the whole thing. It was exceedingly vexatious. But Palmerston was in a hurry and could not wait. The prince, if he would insist upon interfering, must be brushed on one side. Albert was very angry. He highly disapproved both of Palmerston's policy and of his methods of action. He was opposed to absolutism. But in his opinion, 
Palmerston's proceedings were simply calculated to substitute for absolutism, all over Europe, something no better and very possibly worse, the anarchy of faction and mob violence. The dangers of this revolutionary ferment were grave. Even in England, Chartism was rampant, a sinister movement which might at any moment upset the Constitution and abolish the monarchy. Surely, with such dangers at home, this was a very bad time to choose for encouraging lawlessness abroad. He naturally took a particular interest in Germany. His instincts, his affections, his prepossessions were ineradicably German. Stockmar was deeply involved in German politics, and he had a multitude of relatives among the ruling German families, who, from the midst of the hurly-burly of revolution, wrote him long and agitated letters once a week. Having considered the question of Germany's future from every point of view, he came to the conclusion, under Stockmar's guidance, that the great aim for every lover of Germany should be her unification under the sovereignty of Prussia. The intricacy of the situation was extreme, and the possibilities of good or evil which every hour might bring forth were incalculable. Yet he saw with horror that Palmerston neither understood nor cared to understand the niceties of this momentous problem, but rushed on blindly, dealing blows to right and left, quite, so far as he could see, without system and even without motive, except, indeed, a totally unreasonable distrust of the Prussian state. But his disagreement with the details of Palmerston's policy was in reality merely a symptom of the fundamental differences between the characters of the two men. In Albert's eyes, Palmerston was a coarse, reckless egotist, whose combined arrogance and ignorance must inevitably have their issue in folly and disaster. Nothing could be more antipathetic to him than a mind so strangely lacking in patience, in reflection, in principle, and in the habits of ratiocination. For him it was intolerable to think in a hurry, to jump to slapdash decisions, to act on instincts that could not be explained. Everything must be done in due order, with careful premeditation, the premises of the position must first be firmly established, and he must reach the correct conclusion by a regular series of rational steps. In complicated questions, and what questions rightly looked at were not complicated, to commit one's thoughts to paper was the wisest course, and it was the course which Albert, laborious though it might be, invariably adopted. It was as well, too, to draw up a reasoned statement after an event as well as before it and accordingly, whatever happened, it was always found that the prince had made a memorandum. On one occasion he reduced to six pages of foolscap the substance of a confidential conversation with Sir Robert Peel, and having read them aloud to him, asked him to append his signature. Sir Robert, who never liked to commit himself, became extremely uneasy, upon which the prince, understanding that it was necessary to humour the singular susceptibilities of Englishmen, with great tact dropped that particular memorandum into the fire. But as for Palmerston, he never gave one so much as a chance to read him a memorandum. He positively seemed to dislike discussion, and before one knew where one was, without any warning whatever, he would plunge into some harebrained violent project which, as likely as not, would logically involve a European war. Closely connected, too, 
with this cautious, painstaking reasonableness of Albert's, was his desire to examine questions thoroughly from every point of view, to go down to the roots of things, and to act in strict accordance with some well-defined principle. Under Stockmar's tutelage he was constantly engaged in enlarging his outlook and in endeavouring to envisage vital problems both theoretically and practically, both with precision and with depth. To one whose mind was thus habitually occupied, the empirical activities of Palmerston, who had no notion of what a principle meant, resembled the incoherent vagaries of a tiresome child. What did Palmerston know of economics, of science, of history? What did he care for morality and education? How much consideration had he devoted in the whole course of his life to the improvement of the condition of the working classes and to the general amelioration of the human race? The answers to such questions were all too obvious. And yet, it is easy to imagine also what might have been Palmerston's jaunty comment. Ah, your royal highness is busy with fine schemes and beneficent calculations. Exactly. Well, as for me, I must say I'm quite satisfied with my morning's work. I've had the iron hurdles taken out of the green park. The exasperating man, however, preferred to make no comment and to proceed in smiling silence on his inexcusable way. The process of brushing on one side very soon came into operation. Important foreign office dispatches were either submitted to the Queen so late that there was no time to correct them, or they were not submitted to her at all. Or, having been submitted, and some passage in them being objected to and an alteration suggested, they were after all sent off in their original form. The Queen complained. The Prince complained. Both complained together. It was quite useless. Palmerston was most apologetic, could not understand how it had occurred, must give the clerks a wigging. Certainly Her Majesty's wishes should be attended to, and such a thing should never happen again. But, of course, it very soon happened again, and the royal remonstrances redoubled. Victoria, her partisan passions thoroughly aroused, imported into her protests a personal vehemence which those of Albert lacked. Did Lord Palmerston forget that she was Queen of England? How could she tolerate a state of affairs in which dispatches written in her name were sent abroad without her approval or even her knowledge? What could be more derogatory to her position than to be obliged to receive indignant letters from the crowned heads to whom those dispatches were addressed, letters which she did not know how to answer, since she so thoroughly agreed with them. She addressed herself to the Prime Minister. No remonstrance has any effect with Lord Palmerston, she said. Lord Palmerston, she told him on another occasion, has as usual pretended not to have had time to submit the draft to the Queen before he had sent it off. She summoned Lord John to her presence, poured out her indignation, and afterwards, on the advice of Albert, noted down what had passed in a memorandum. I said that I thought that Lord Palmerston often endangered the honour of England by taking a very prejudiced and one-sided view of a question, that his writings were always as bitter as gall and did great harm, which Lord John entirely assented to, 
and that I often felt quite ill from anxiety. Then she turned to her uncle. The state of Germany, she wrote in a comprehensive and despairing review of the European situation, is dreadful, and one does feel quite ashamed about that once really so peaceful and happy country. That there are still good people there, I am sure, but they allow themselves to be worked upon in a frightful and shameful way. In France a crisis seems at hand. What a very bad figure we cut in this mediation! Really, it is quite immoral, with Ireland quivering in our grasp and ready to throw off her allegiance at any moment, for us to force Austria to give up her lawful possessions. What shall we say if Canada, Malta, etc., begin to trouble us? It hurts me terribly. But what did Lord Palmerston care? Lord John's position grew more and more irksome. He did not approve of his colleague's treatment of the Queen. When he begged him to be more careful, he was met with the reply that 28,000 dispatches passed through the Foreign Office in a single year, that if every one of these were to be subjected to the royal criticism, the delay would be most serious, that, as it was, the waste of time and the worry involved in submitting drafts to the meticulous examination of Prince Albert was almost too much for an overworked minister, and that, as a matter of fact, the postponement of important decisions owing to this cause had already produced very unpleasant diplomatic consequences. These excuses would have impressed Lord John more favorably, if he had not himself had to suffer from a similar neglect. As often as not, Palmerston failed to communicate even to him the most important dispatches. The Foreign Secretary was becoming an almost independent power, acting on his own initiative and swaying the policy of England on his own responsibility. On one occasion, in 1847, he had actually been upon the point of threatening to break off diplomatic relations with France without consulting either the cabinet or the prime minister, and such incidents were constantly recurring. When this became known to the prince, he saw that his opportunity had come. If he could only drive into the utmost the wedge between the two statesmen, if he could only secure the alliance of Lord John, then the suppression or the removal of Lord Palmerston would be almost certain to follow. He set about the business with all the pertinacity of his nature. Both he and the Queen put every kind of pressure upon the Prime Minister. They wrote, they harangued, they relapsed into awful silence. It occurred to them that Lord Clarendon, an important member of the Cabinet, would be a useful channel for their griefs. They commanded him to dine at the palace, and directly the meal was over, the Queen, as he described it afterwards, exploded, and went with the utmost vehemence and bitterness into the whole of Palmerston's conduct, all the effects produced all over the world, and all her own feelings and sentiments about it. When she had finished, the Prince took up the tale, with less excitement, but with equal force. Lord Clarendon found himself in an awkward situation. He disliked Palmerston's policy, but he was his colleague, and he disapproved of the attitude of his royal hosts. In his opinion, they were wrong in wishing that courtiers rather than ministers should conduct the affairs of the country, and he thought that they labored under the curious mistake that the Foreign Office was their peculiar department, 
and that they had the right to control, if not to direct, the foreign policy of England. He therefore, with extreme politeness, gave it to be understood that he would not commit himself in any way. But Lord John, in reality, needed no pressure. Attacked by his sovereign, ignored by his foreign secretary, he led a miserable life. With the advent of the dreadful Schleswig-Holstein question, the most complex in the whole diplomatic history of Europe, his position, crushed between the upper and the nether millstones, grew positively unbearable. He became anxious above all things to get Palmerston out of the Foreign Office. But then, supposing Palmerston refused to go? In a memorandum made by the Prince at about this time, of an interview between himself, the Queen, and the Prime Minister, we catch a curious glimpse of the states of mind of these three high personages, the anxiety and irritation of Lord John, the vehement acrimony of Victoria, and the reasonable animosity of Albert, drawn together, as it were, under the shadow of an unseen presence, the cause of that celestial anger, the gay, portentous Palmerston. At one point in the conversation, Lord John observed that he believed the Foreign Secretary would consent to a change of offices. Lord Palmerston, he said, realized that he had lost the Queen's confidence, though only on public and not on personal grounds. But on that, the Prince noted, The Queen interrupted Lord John by remarking that she distrusted him on personal grounds also. But I remarked that Lord Palmerston had so far at least seen rightly that he had become disagreeable to the Queen, not on account of his person, but of his political doings, to which the Queen assented. Then the Prince suggested that there was a danger of the Cabinet breaking up, and of Lord Palmerston returning to office as Prime Minister. But on that point Lord John was reassuring. He thought Lord Palmerston too old to do much in the future, having passed his sixty-fifth year, Eventually it was decided that nothing could be done for the present, but that the utmost secrecy must be observed, and so the conclave ended. At last, in 1850, deliverance seemed to be at hand. There were signs that the public were growing weary of the alarms and excursions of Palmerston's diplomacy, and when his support of Don Pacifico, a British subject, in a quarrel with the Greek government, seemed to be upon the point of involving the country in a war not only with Greece, but also with France, and possibly with Russia into the bargain, a heavy cloud of distrust and displeasure appeared to be gathering, and about to burst over his head. A motion directed against him in the House of Lords was passed by a substantial majority. The question was next to be discussed in the House of Commons, where another adverse vote was not improbable, and would seal the doom of the minister. Palmerston received the attack with complete nonchalance, and then, at the last possible moment, he struck. In a speech of over four hours, in which exposition, invective, argument, declamation, plain talk, and resounding eloquence were mingled together with consummate art and extraordinary felicity, he annihilated his enemies. The hostile motion was defeated, and Palmerston was once more the hero of the hour. Simultaneously, Atropos herself conspired to favor him. Sir Robert Peel was thrown from his horse and killed. By this tragic chance, Palmerston saw the one rival great enough to cope with him removed from his path. He judged, and judged rightly, that he was the most popular man in England, 
and when Lord John revived the project of his exchanging the Foreign Office for some other position in the Cabinet, he absolutely refused to stir. Great was the disappointment of Albert, great was the indignation of Victoria. The House of Commons, she wrote, is becoming very unmanageable and troublesome. The Prince, perceiving that Palmerston was more firmly fixed in the saddle than ever, decided that something drastic must be done. Five months before, the prescient Baron had drawn up, in case of emergency, a memorandum, which had been carefully docketed and placed in a pigeonhole ready to hand. The emergency had now arisen, and the memorandum must be used. The Queen copied out the words of Stockmar and sent them to the Prime Minister, requesting him to show her letter to Palmerston. She thinks it right, she wrote, in order to prevent any mistake for the future, shortly to explain what it is she expects from her foreign secretary. She requires, one, that he will distinctly state what he proposes in a given case, in order that the Queen may know as distinctly to what she has given her royal sanction. Two, having once given her sanction to a measure, that it be not arbitrarily altered or modified by the Minister. Such an act she must consider as failing in sincerity towards the Crown, and justly to be visited by the exercise of her constitutional right of dismissing that minister. Lord John Russell did as he was bid, and forwarded the Queen's letter to Lord Palmerston. This transaction, which was of grave constitutional significance, was entirely unknown to the outside world. If Palmerston had been a sensitive man, he would probably have resigned on the receipt of the Queen's missive. But he was far from sensitive. He loved power, and his power was greater than ever. An unerring instinct told him that this was not the time to go. Nevertheless, he was seriously perturbed. He understood at last that he was struggling with a formidable adversary, whose skill and strength, unless they were mollified, might do irreparable injury to his career. He therefore wrote to Lord John, briefly acquiescing in the Queen's requirements, I have taken a copy of this memorandum of the Queen, and will not fail to attend to the directions which it contains. And at the same time, he asked for an interview with the Prince. Albert at once summoned him to the palace, and was astonished to observe, as he noted in a memorandum, that when Palmerston entered the room, he was very much agitated, shook, and had tears in his eyes, so as quite to move me, who never under any circumstances had known him otherwise than with a bland smile on his face. The old statesman was profuse in protestations and excuses. The young one was coldly polite. At last, after a long and inconclusive conversation, the prince, drawing himself up, said that, in order to give Lord Palmerston an example of what the Queen wanted, he would ask him a question point-blank. Lord Palmerston waited in respectful silence while the Prince proceeded as follows. You are aware that the Queen has objected to the protocol about Schleswig and of the grounds on which she has done so. Her opinion has been overruled, the protocol stating the desire of the great powers to see the integrity of the Danish monarchy preserved has been signed, and upon this the King of Denmark has invaded Schleswig, where the war is raging. 
If Holstein is attacked also, which is likely, the Germans will not be restrained from flying to her assistance. Russia has menaced to interfere with arms if the Schleswigers are successful. What will you do if this emergency arises, provoking most likely an European war, and which will arise very probably when we shall be at Balmoral and Lord John in another part of Scotland? The Queen expects from your foresight that you have contemplated this possibility, and requires a categorical answer as to what you would do in the event supposed. Strangely enough, to this point-blank question, the Foreign Secretary appeared to be unable to reply. The whole matter, he said, was extremely complicated, and the contingencies mentioned by His Royal Highness were very unlikely to arise. The Prince persisted, but it was useless. For a full hour he struggled to extract a categorical answer, until at length Palmerston bowed himself out of the room. Albert threw up his hands in shocked amazement. What could one do with such a man? What indeed? For in spite of all his apologies and all his promises, within a few weeks the incorrigible reprobate was at his tricks again. The Austrian general Heinau, notorious as a rigorous suppressor of rebellion in Hungary and Italy, and in particular as a flogger of women, came to England and took it into his head to pay a visit to Monsieur Barclay at Perkins's brewery. The features of General Hyena, as he was everywhere called, his grim thin face, his enormous pepper-and-salt moustaches, had gained a horrid celebrity, and it so happened that among the clerks at the brewery there was a refugee from Vienna who had given his fellow workers a first-hand account of the General's characteristics. The Austrian ambassador, scenting danger, begged his friend not to appear in public, or, if he must do so, to cut off his moustaches first. But the general would take no advice. He went to the brewery, was immediately recognized, surrounded by a crowd of angry draymen, pushed about, shouted at, punched in the ribs, and pulled by the moustaches, until, bolting down an alley with a mob at his heels, brandishing brooms and roaring, Hyena! he managed to take refuge in a public house, whence he was removed under the protection of several policemen. The Austrian government was angry and demanded explanations. Palmerston, who of course was privately delighted by the incident, replied, regretting what had occurred, but adding that in his opinion the general had evinced a want of propriety in coming to England at the present moment, and he delivered his note to the ambassador without having previously submitted it to the Queen or to the Prime Minister. Naturally, when this was discovered, there was a serious storm. The Prince was especially indignant. The conduct of the draymen he regarded, with disgust and alarm, as a slight foretaste of what an unregulated mass of illiterate people is capable, and Palmerston was requested by Lord John to withdraw his note and to substitute for it another, from which all censure of the general had been omitted. On this the Foreign Secretary threatened resignation, but the Prime Minister was firm. For a moment the royal hopes rose high, only to be dashed to the ground again by the cruel compliance of the enemy. Palmerston, suddenly lamb-like, agreed to everything. The note was withdrawn and altered, and peace was patched up once more. It lasted for a year, and then in October 1851 
the arrival of Kossuth in England brought on another crisis. Palmerston's desire to receive the Hungarian patriot at his house in London was vetoed by Lord John. Once more there was a sharp struggle. Once more Palmerston, after threatening resignation, yielded. But still the insubordinate man could not keep quiet. A few weeks later, a deputation of radicals from Finsbury and Islington waited on him at the Foreign Office and presented him with an address, in which the emperors of Austria and Russia were stigmatized as odious and detestable assassins and merciless tyrants and despots. The Foreign Secretary, in his reply, while mildly deprecating these expressions, allowed his real sentiments to appear with a most undiplomatic insouciance. There was an immediate scandal, and the court flowed over with rage and vituperation. "'I think,' said the baron, "'the man has been for some time insane.' Victoria, in an agitated letter, urged Lord John to assert his authority. But Lord John perceived that on this matter the Foreign Secretary had the support of public opinion and he judged it wiser to bide his time. He had not long to wait. The culmination of the long series of conflicts, threats, and exacerbations came before the year was out. On December 2nd, Louis-Napoleon's coup d'etat took place in Paris, and on the following day, Palmerston, without consulting anybody, expressed in a conversation with the French ambassador his approval of Napoleon's act. Two days later he was instructed by the Prime Minister, in accordance with a letter from the Queen, that it was the policy of the English government to maintain an attitude of strict neutrality towards the affairs of France. Nevertheless, in an official dispatch to the British ambassador in Paris, he repeated the approval of the coup d'etat, which he had already given verbally to the French ambassador in London. This dispatch was submitted neither to the Queen nor to the Prime Minister. Lord John's patience, as he himself said, was drained to the last drop. He dismissed Lord Palmerston. Victoria was in ecstasies, and Albert knew that the triumph was his, even more than Lord John's. It was his wish that Lord Granville, a young man whom he believed to be pliant to his influence, should be Palmerston's successor, and Lord Granville was appointed. Henceforward, it seemed that the prince would have his way in foreign affairs. After years of struggle and mortification, success greeted him on every hand. In his family, he was an adored master. In the country, the great exhibition had brought him respect and glory. And now, in the secret seats of power, he had gained a new supremacy. He had wrestled with the terrible Lord Palmerston, the embodiment of all that was most hostile to him in the spirit of England, and his redoubtable opponent had been overthrown. Was England herself at his feet? It might be so, and yet? It is said that the sons of England have a certain tiresome quality. They never know when they are beaten. It was odd, but Palmerston was positively still jaunty. Was it possible? Could he believe, in his blind arrogance, that even his ignominious dismissal from office was something that could be brushed aside? End of chapter 5, part 2